Coming up next is my conversation with Mitchell S. Jackson. If you missed the last episode of Between the Covers with Marlon James, you may have missed the news that the podcast has been adopted by Tin House. I spell out what that all means at the beginning of the last episode, but a couple things to note are that the new home for the show is tinhouse.com slash podcasts. Another is that there will be all sorts of Tin House gifts available if you become a supporter, from Morgan Parker's new poetry collection, Magical Negro, to signed prints from Whitman Illuminated and Moby Dick in Pictures, to an early reader subscription where you receive 12 of Tin House's upcoming titles well before they go on sale to the general public. You can check out all the options at patreon.com slash between the covers. Lastly, as you'll notice today, I'll be giving a little bit of Tin House related news at the beginning of each episode. I'm excited for today's news to be about the Tin House Summer Writers Workshop, as many of my early formative experiences as a writer happened during these workshop weeks. Now in its 16th year, the workshop is taking place this summer, July 7th to July 14th at Reed College in Portland. And just to give you a small taste of the faculty that is going to be there, here are some of the faculty this summer who have also been on the program. You can study nonfiction with today's guest, Mitchell S. Jackson, or with Therese Marie Myatt. You can study novel writing with Rebecca Mackay or Aro Kwan, short fiction with Kelly Link or Justin Torres. And you can study poetry with poets that hopefully will one day be on the program, like Kava Akbar and Natalie Diaz and Patricia Smith. And for the first time, Tin House is offering a workshop in the graphic narrative as well. The deadline to apply is April 7th. The afternoon lectures and evening readings are open to the public, and more information can be found at tinhouse.com slash workshops. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a a catalyst for dialogue and and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the writer Mitchell S. Jackson. Jackson holds a master's in creative writing from Portland State University and an MFA from New York University, where he now teaches as an associate professor of writing. His first novel, The Residue Years, won the Ernest Gaines Prize for Literary Excellence and was a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award, the Flaherty Dunnan First Novel Prize, and the Hurston Wright Legacy Award. 
Jackson has been awarded the Lannan Foundation Fellowship, a Center for Fiction Fellowship, and a TED Fellowship, and he's the winner of a 2016 Whiting Award in Fiction. The Whiting Award Selection Committee says, Mitchell Jackson writes into Portland like Edward P. Jones writes into Washington, D.C., with his judicious left eye on the full hearts of his characters and his vigilant right eye attuned to the wolf at the door. Jackson is also the co-director, writer, and producer of the documentary The Residue Years, a film that explores the autobiographical elements of his novel of the same name. Jackson's writing has appeared in the New York Times Book Review, Tin House, Vice, Salon, and elsewhere, and he's here today to talk about his much-anticipated memoir with starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, and Library Journal entitled Survival Math, Notes on an All-American Family. Jason Reynolds says, Survival Math should be praised for many reasons. Its literary integrity, its cinematic pace, its creativity and candor, but what I find most striking about this work, what I think distinguishes it, is its heart. As a black man in America, I find that there is often pressure to use our stories as performance, to spin them into shaky pedestals where proof of life is professed for a fee. They are ours, but often we do not own them. This story, this complex history of an American family that could be representative of many, Jackson undoubtedly proves is his. It beats like a part of him. Tyemba Jess says Mitchell Jackson's survival math is riveted by his exacting and tender calculus of each subject's depth and humanity. Each hustle, dodge, and scramble we witness in these pages is anchored in the turbulent sea of American history. Jackson's musings skillfully illuminate the bloodlines, both inherited and earned, that pulse through the body of America's gang-graffitied carceral state. Finally, Terrence Hayes says of survival math, If you've read Mitchell S. Jackson, you already know he writes with a poet's ear. In survival math, he foregrounds how powerfully he writes with a poet's perception. His sentences radiate empathy. He perceives the lives of hustlers, prisoners, and ghosts. He speaks to and with and for his people, which is to say your people and my people. Mitchell S. Jackson's insights into how black men survive become insights of everyone's survival. This book is beautiful and vital. Welcome to Between the Covers, Mitchell S. Jackson. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I, I'm excited to talk about survival math mm. because of the narrative you recount, but I'm, I'm equally or even more possibly excited to talk about all these really interesting craft choices you make yeah. about how to tell the story. Yeah. And when I was reading survival math, I was actually thinking about my conversation with Laylee Long Soldier. Uh, yeah. um, and obviously your two books are, are different in a lot of ways. Mm. Hers is a poetry collection. Yours yeah. is a memoir. Um, but when Laylee and I were talking, we were talking about place. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about the role of land acknowledgement. So knowing where you are mm -hmm. and whose land it is and yeah. its history. And sort of that being the first step toward creating uh, the possibility of justice. Yeah. So even though... Um, most people focus on her book being an engagement around Obama's apology to the Native Americans. Mm -hmm. The first half of her book establishes her origin story. Um, it establishes her relationship to language, and it establishes who who she is in her own in her own words. Mm -hmm. So you sort of open your memoir in a way that feels like 
it has a kindred spirit to that. Yeah. Um, and I wanted you to talk about it. So you, you, you start out the memoir with a prologue that begins with the words, Dear Marcus. Yes. So, so tell us who you're addressing <clears throat> as we open survival math, and yeah. then and maybe also lean into why you're addressing th- this person to begin your story. Okay. So um, Marcus is Marcus Lopez or Lopez, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And he is the first person of African descent on record to uh, step foot on what became Oregon. And uh, I read about him, um, I think it was Professor Daryl Milner, who was a, I don't know if he's emeritus at Portland State, I think so. Um, And uh, it just, it struck me that the first black man to like land around these parts was killed. So he, the same day that he arrived, he was killed by natives, um, and I tell the story of how he was killed, but it just it, it struck me as symbolic that um, our presence was like immediately eradicated from this area. And um, I uh, I was thinking about what has transpired in this area since then. And and then um, I thought uh, epistolary was a good form because I feel like to me the closest I don't know if it's the closest, but like one way to invite the reader to kind of press up against whatever the content is, is to write it in a letter. Because if the letter is done well, it's like the reader is eavesdropping on a conversation and they're like privy to information that like other people aren't privy to. And so I wanted to create that sense of intimacy. And I also wanted to have like a, a broad scope um, to to cover a lot of time with the with the letter, so I wanted to. What I do is I write a letter to him about what's happened since he passed, and I I uh, try to get as, as as close as I can to the present day, um, even though I kind of skip ahead at at some points. Um, and so that was really important to me because I felt like it was establishing, like where I was going, some of the people that I was talking to, some of the ideas that I was interested in, and then also laying the kind of groundwork that this place has always been antagonistic to people of color. And and you and Marcus share a date, August 16th. Yeah, which I did not know when I first started, but I was like, oh, like, this points as a sign to me, right, that he died on the same day uh, that I was born, August 16th. Yeah. Yeah. So in this prologue, we, as you say, we sort of travel forward from Marcus and we learn some of the most... Um, standout moments of around black history in yeah. Oregon and the Oregon territory. And we can't really go into all of that. Yeah. And, uh, in this conversation, so I'm going to, I'll put up on the, on the website. Um, I don't know if you know, Walida Imarisha. No. So she does, she used to do this uh, thing in Portland called, um, why aren't there more black people in Oregon? Oh yes. I do know who she a is. Hidden yes. history. Okay. Yeah. So there's a great, like hour long, uh, YouTube video that I can put up for listeners if they're interested in, in learning more. Okay. But, um, but I was hoping maybe you could talk just briefly about the laws around the formation of the Oregon Territory. Yeah. Because so the ter- Oregon Territory being what it would be present day Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, and right. a little bit of Wyoming and Montana. But mm. there were some very specific things to this territory. Yeah. In in dif- in difference to a, a lot of places in the U.S. Yeah. So the first territory founded with um, exclusion laws in its constitution. So um, they didn't want the presence of slaves in this 
uh, area or the enslaved in this area. When you know, if we look at the kind of present day statistics of Portland or of Oregon, like we see the how low the percentages are of people of color, and people go like, "Wow!" Like when I go other places, they're like, "Oh my God, I didn't know black people exist there." I'm like, "Well, we're really a small percent of the population." That's what I would say for years and years and years, not knowing about this kind of initial ideology of exclusion, and then to find out about that and say, "Oh well." This is actually of a plan, and this is actually it was seems like a great plan because all these years later, 170 years later, it's still working. Yeah, and and you also point out, for instance, a very early connection between the Portland police and the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, I think in the 20s, and we're yeah. still seeing that play itself out right. even today and on the news. Yeah, yeah. Um, last night, I, I posed the question a, a couple of times yesterday, but I said. I think the kind of national identity of Oregon, and especially of Portland, is like the home of liberals, right? But then also, I'm not always, but it seems more often now reading about white supremacists inhabiting this space. And so I, yesterday I was like, how can this be a bastion for both the white supremacists and the liberals? Like, what is it about Oregon that allowed, that makes this the place that they both want to reside. Hmm. Um, And I don't have the answer. I mean, the kind of immediate answer came to me was like, well, whiteness binds these two groups. And maybe that's more important than any other kind of ideology, which is another point I think I'm making maybe American blood or something, right? The church of whiteness. From a story perspective, knowing about Marcus Mm -hmm. and then also knowing about York, the African-American who helped map out the Oregon Trail. Yeah about the exclusion laws, about the redlining and displacement later, mm-hmm. um, knowing all of these things, even if you don't bring them up later, mm-hmm. we can't forget them. Yeah. So they sort of echo through as we learn the story of your family. Yeah. Um, it feels like it irre- irrevocably changes yeah. um, the way we read your family story. Mm-hmm. And I wonder about the sort of the political element of this. Because again, it reminds me a little bit of land acknowledgements. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, I suspect... Most white people can't name the names of the First Nations uh, upon whose land we now live. So, And that's not just true to Oregon. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's probably true in most places. Mm -hmm. And I suspect most white people in Portland don't know of Vanport, which used to be the second largest city in Oregon. It was 40% black, and it was destroyed by a flood. Um, So given this sort of entrenched incuriousness that Mm -hmm. I think maybe is most— prevalent in the white community, mm-hmm. it feels like if we didn't have this prologue, that your book would be a different book. Yes. I just wanted to hear a little bit about yeah. that. Well, I am trying to force people to reckon with the history. And even in reviews and some some interviews, people are like, well, why didn't you just tell us the story? Like, why are we getting all this, like, history and philosophy? And I'm like, the story... The, the, anybody can tell you the story. Like my actually, my story is not unique. Not at least not to this area. But I'm more concerned with like how did this come to be, and in that you know the search takes me all of these different other places. But I'm like when a person says I just want to hear the story, that's to me it sounds like someone telling a basketball player just shut up and dribble. You know, mm-hmm. like we just want to be entertained, right? Because that's the story. Like, I can tell you all these kind of violent things that happened or that my mother struggled with addiction or I know this guy that was killed and I almost got, like... But that's, like, 
if I just told you that, that's sensationalism, right? And like, I don't want to feed into that. So it was very important for me to ground this in the history, to contextualize what was happening, which is another reason why I chose the poems, right? So I'm like, not only do I want to contextualize this in history, I'm going to take the things that you venerate and use them to frame these really personal stories about my family. So when I say it's an all-American family, I'm now using your Declaration of Independence, your Plessy versus Ferguson, your, you know... Well, to to talk more about the poems in that regard, tell people what a cento is who don't know what a cento mm. is, because there's something specific to the cento that makes it um, what you're describing yeah. now. So the cento is a poetic form in which <clears throat> the... Um, the writer, um, I don't say borrows, he or she or they take a line from it's it's a it's a poem composed from the lines of other poems. Um, so it's not any original work, but there's obviously the work of, you know, figuring out where the lines are going to go. And it, it I actually had the idea to um, use Sento's very, very late in the composition of this book. I mean, it was pretty much like close to my last edit. And then I just woke up one night and I was like, oh, I know how to frame this in American history. I'll use Cento's from American documents. So I spent, you know, the next week printing out all the documents, highlighting all of them, reading about them. And then uh, and then I, you know, composed a few poems, which were bad. Um, and luckily I have a partner who's a poet. And she was like, no, you this is not a poem you have mentioned. <laughs> I sent it to all my friends. I have a really good friend, A. Van Jordan, who runs um, the MFA program at University of Michigan. Okay. Uh, I sent him the poems. And, you know, he's my buddy, but he was like, man, you need to keep pushing on these. <laughs> but uh, we, we finally got to Those are to some a good point. friends. Yeah, <laughs> right? Some <laughs> award-winning poets. Not bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I pushed and pushed on them. But it really was because I, I want whoever reads this to reckon with how these things came to be. And I'm very I'm I'm less interested in like this is what happened. Could you read us one of them? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I was hoping you'd read uh What Have We Endured? What have we endured? Our repeated petitions answered only by repeated injury, curtailing the pursuit of life, liberty, and property. Control of the labor of one man for the benefit of another. Laws permitting, even requiring us to suffer instability, injustice, confusion, disabilities and burdens, a long train of abuses and usurpations, absolute despotism, a great civil war, cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, destroyed the lives of our people. We've been listening to Mitchell S. Jackson read from Survival Math. After you orient us to Oregon black history, Mm -hmm. we encounter our first cento, which is composed of other people's voices also. Mm -hmm. We don't yet end up at your story. Yeah. It's kind of like a a Russian doll set up of (laughs) of nested narratives. Yeah. And so uh, before we learn what it's like for you growing up, before we learn about you switching schools Mm -hmm. because of all the displacement, Mm -hmm. before we learn about the gang wars in Mm -hmm. Portland in the 80s and 90s or Mm -hmm. the drug dealing that— that landed you in prison Mm -hmm. or your trajectory to becoming a writer and a filmmaker Mm -hmm. and a public speaker. We first learn about your family's move from the South to Portland, but we already know the history of the place. So we, before your family arrives, we're already sort of there. You've sort of established like, well, here's the 
place they're moving to, regardless of how much they know or don't know about it, we yeah. sort of are prepared for um, the context in which they're going to make the choices that they make. Yeah. The choices your mom makes and around drugs and mm-hmm. your dad as a pimp and yeah. other things that that happen, I feel armed in a certain way with the ability to uh, see it in a complex way. Yeah. And I guess I wanted to know if it had to do with any sort of notion of selfhood for you mm-hmm. around this, because I was thinking of the the quote by uh, the poet Sam Sachs who said, "You don't write alone any more than you were born alone." Mm. And I wondered if maybe the structure of the, these stories, mm-hmm. that they're all sort of nested in, that you can't tell, I don't want to put the words in your mouth, but that you can't tell the, your story yeah. without telling your mom's story Absolutely. and without telling Marcus's story. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. Like, I have to establish, like, I'm looking for the genesis, right? That's. I guess you can say this book is like one long quest to find the genesis of this kind of present whatever the extant moment is, right? So, like, okay, yes, my mother struggles with addiction, but, like, how did we get there? Do I need to go back to the coca leaf, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Right? So now I'm back in the Andes going, like, how did I get from that to a house on 16th and Alberta? Mm -hmm. Um, And, yes, I think you can't talk about me and my relationship to women and my love of sports and my uh, um, years as a drug dealer without saying, well, but my father did this, you know, and he instilled in me a certain kind of belief system, right? But then we can't talk about him. <laughs> we talk about right. what happened before, you know, so like, yeah. so then I'm like, well, to be fair, I have to keep going back, right? Yeah. Because everyone is created by a set of circumstances. Right. It would be unfair. I mean, you could do it, mm. it leave somebody flat, like yeah. not dimensionalize or see the reasons behind, say, yeah. your, your dad or somebody. Yeah. And so they become the person that's the cause. But yeah. it feels like you're really intent on um, not doing that, yeah. on making sure that every person we, we're getting the reasons or the story behind their choices, yeah. too. Because well, I'm writing about people that I care about, right? That yeah. I, like, I, 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 everyone that I wrote about in, uh, in any kind of significant way, I had like a close connection to, and I wanted to honor that. Um, I was not writing from a place of, like, superiority. I wasn't writing from a place of maliciousness. Like, I was really both curious. I was trying to be generous. I was also trying to be critical, right? So I was doing all of those things, and I wanted to be rigorous as well. So there were a lot of things in my mind, but I'm still trying to get to, like, man, like, I see this, but I don't know where this came from. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious about how we got to this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love I love that about the book. Yeah. Um, so you, you've talked and written about how it was when you were in prison mm-hmm. that you realized you weren't going to go back to prison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that Easy choice. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was when you where, where you both started writing and where you read your first two novels. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't long after that you were in your first graduate program yeah. in writing and then a second graduate program in writing. Mm-hmm. So I was hoping maybe you could talk to us about some of the first formative experiences for you and figuring out um, how you wanted to write as a writer. Okay. So um, what writers or what moments, if they weren't with writers, mm-hmm. um, helped you see what was possible and sort of puzzle out how you specifically wanted to do it? Okay. Um, you know, I've, I never thought about this as kind of, uh, like, a uh, the connections between, um, these writers slash professors. Um, but I'm going to start with Diana Abu-Jabbar. 
who was a professor at Portland State when I applied. And uh, I was working in the newsroom at, I think it was KATU, and I saw online um, that they were starting an MA program. And uh, I called up, and I was like, I want to apply, but I was past the deadline. And she was like, oh, well, if you can get me the package, you know, in the next couple days, like, I'll still consider you. I guess they didn't reach their enrollment that they wanted. (laughs) And uh, so I, I got, you know, I went and uh, checked out James Baldwin's Go Tell on the Mountain and uh, called up some people for um, for uh, recommendations. I think I called up Kim Body, who's like a local uh, news anchor. And uh, so I had my recs, and I, I wrote like a really bad knockoff story of Baldwin. And uh, I took it to her, but it was short. It was supposed to be like 25 pages. I think my story was like 15 pages. I said, look, mm. I got the 15 pages, and I can get you the other 10 this is ridiculous, actually. And she was like, okay, give them to me. And then I called back, and I was like, I have those 10 pages for you. And she was like, don't worry, Mitchell, you're in. Um, so I, I want to note her because sometimes what you need is someone to take a chance on you, right? And so in, in to, to my mind, what Diana did was take a chance on me. Hmm. At the end of that program, I took a an elective. This is Portland State. I took an elective with Michael McGregor. Um, and we were studying feature, it was feature writing. And, uh, out of that class, I wrote my first published piece. Um, it was, um, what was it called? Almost famous. It was about three basketball players that I knew who didn't make it to the NBA. So they were, they were local legends, but they never made it to the NBA. And so one of the things that I think I started to apprehend in that class was about the structure of nonfiction or the structure of a feature story, at least. Um, which has served me all these years later. Like, I can see the structure of something when I'm writing. Like, if I had to write a story about this interview, like, I would already be thinking about, like, well, what's my lead? And, mm-hmm. you know, how am I going to contextualize this? And, you know, at some point I would say, oh, that's how I'm going to get out. Um, so I really am thankful to him for that. And then also him kind of guiding me through the pitching and publication process. So Michael McGregor is the next one. And then uh, there is... Uh, Paul Marshall, who's a, um, I mean, she's cemented in the history of African-American literature, but she was one of my first uh, professors, and she gave me a short story called um, Wait by John Edgar Whiteman, and I read that story, and I immediately knew that we were kindred, or at least I believe we were kindred. He didn't yet know that, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, I actually, it so happened that he was teaching in a summer program at NYU between my first and second year of graduate school, so I talked a person into actually two things happened. I couldn't afford the the class, so a woman gave me an adjunct job at NYU to pay for the class. Then she never charged me for it, but that's a different story. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I ended up studying with John Edgar Whiteman, and I, I felt kindred to him because I, I the language that he was using sounded very familiar to me. I read about his life and knew that he had people who had similar experiences to the people in my family. And then I also knew he was respected. Um, and then the uh, the last person I'll mention is Gordon Lish. And I didn't meet him until four years or five years after I was out of NYU. So this is 2009, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't, he his workshop is, uh, I think it's pretty singular in the way that he teaches. I mean, it's seven, six, seven, eight hours of straight lecture. No one gets up and takes a bathroom break. And then he um, he asked readers or the people in the class, like, okay, you go home and write a sentence. 
what I should say, the lectures are about sentence making. He tells us to go home and write a sentence, and then when we come back, he'll lecture for another six or seven hours, then he'll say, okay, read a sentence. And uh, from the first three sessions, might have been two, I was the only person that got to read two sentences in that class. Because he stops you if he doesn't like it? Yeah. Like, you'll start, like, once upon, he'll say, stop. Like, that was bullshit. Did you know it was bullshit? <laughs> you know, he said, why are you reading that bullshit in here? I'm going to die soon. And this is what you're reading? And then he'll go to the next person. You, go. Okay. No, stop it, man. That's not writing. And so when he got to me, uh, he said, Jackson, read. I said, she told me to hold it for safekeep. He said, uh-huh, go on. I said, oh, my God. I said, she told me to hold it for safekeep, and then she took it back. He said, yes, go on. I said, rent money from under the mattress. He said, stop. He said, Jackson, you don't ever want anyone's sympathy. Do you hear me? Don't ever ask for anyone's sympathy. But I'll tell you what, you got an ear. Wow. And that was the greatest feedback I'd ever, still to this day, that I've ever received from anyone. It really like, it, it like lit something in me that really made me think that I could do what I hope I'm trying to, what I'm doing now. Yeah, I love that you still know that line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know where he stopped too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it it doesn't seem like a surprise that poets are praising survival math. Mm-hmm. That we have praise from Gregory Pardlow yeah. and Tyan Bajess and Terence Hayes, mm-hmm. um, and that you studied with Lish because there's a, I mean, all the sonic qualities that mm-hmm. are going on in the syntax in this book. Um, and so I marked out a, I just marked out a really brief paragraph. I was hoping you'd read the paragraph just so we could get a taste of the voice and the, and the music of it. Okay. <clears throat> the epochs. We are the posterity of those ambitious, industrious, assiduous freedmen determined to fight that injustice. And by we, I mean my cohorts and me, the generation of babies born and raised in the 70s and 80s, whose lives were transformed by the unprecedented phenomenological portent. We being the first generation of crack dealers who were the children of crack addicts. We who were pseudo-neo-overseers, our hustles doing the master's work of oppressing our own. We transmorgified our peoples into crackheads and baseheads and dopeheads and dope fiends, into non-beings we called strawberry or smoker or tweaker, into inanimates called a cluck or a hype or a lick, into whom we on occasion reference with a pronoun, but seldom, if ever, by a given name. We couldn't afford proper names. The exorbitant price of acknowledging an addict who had parents and grandparents, that they too might have been a parent, that in the least their lives included people dear to them who worried over their weight and whether they laughed or cried, who anguished over their absences. We felt behooved to evade those facts, to foster as much distance as we could from the truth that those whose slaughter we were aiding and abetting deserved better, much, much better than us. I've been listening to Mitchell S. Jackson read from Survival Math. Man, I like that paragraph. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, man, I'm glad I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, no, it's amazing. <laughs> Oh, so I want to I want to push on this question around um, fiction and nonfiction. Okay, um, because you've you've traveled uh, an interesting circuitous route around mm-hmm. this this story. So your first book, the novel, The Residue Years, is a fictionalized version 
of you and your mom growing up in North Portland. Yeah. And when you were asked why you didn't write it as memoir, mm-hmm. your answer is often pretty complex and multifaceted. So, yeah. for instance, in the Rumpus interview, you give four reasons. One, that you began writing in prison, and since you weren't yet a reader, you mainly knew of novels, mm-hmm. and you weren't yet familiar with the world of memoir mm-hmm. and what that what that was about. Two, that you didn't want people to recognize themselves yep. or to get in trouble if you were writing about someone who was still dealing drugs, mm-hmm. for instance. Uh, three, that once you started studying writing, you felt like you needed fiction's latitude to figure out how to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And four, you definitely didn't want to be pigeonholed as a person with one story who could put that one story down but not be seen as someone who could write. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, after you write the fiction book, mm-hmm. you then make a nonfiction documentary yeah. where, uh, <laughs> that explores the autobiographical details of the book. Yeah. You talk to your mom about her drug problem. You visit the guy um, he first gave drugs to in prison, mm-hmm. and you do a reading in the prison where you were incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And now we have your memoir mm-hmm. um, that returns to your family in North Portland in full-on nonfiction mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess this is a long-winded mm-hmm. way to ask about this journey mm-hmm. and what made you realize that after having done the novel and after having done the documentary that there is still something that you wanted to do specifically as memoir yeah. around the same story. Yeah, I, those things are, are... I still believe those things in the rumpus about the reason reasoning, or maybe it was even the rationale for um, writing uh, The Residue Years as fiction. Um, I uh, actually imagined survival math as essays. Hmm. And uh, I make, in in my mind, what's a clear distinction between essay and memoir. To me, memoir um, is a, a kind of long narrative, right, that centers around, you know, there's like a main character in a memoir. And to me, the essay is a discrete examination of an idea. And so I imagine each of these what are chapters as actually standalone essays, which because they were they're also grounded in the experiences of people that I know seem they are connected in that sense. So you could you could read it, I think, as a memoir, but people who go into this Reading it as a memoir, I think it invites a misread because you're looking for a long narrative and you won't get one. Why I chose essay is because when The Residue Years was on submission uh, to editors, um, I told my agent at the time to send me the rejections. And, uh, you know, they were like standard. We love it. We don't think we can find a place for it. We love it. But one of the rejections was this. And I have this quote here. (laughs) Uh, I felt that the combination of intellectual references and street slang and champ's voice came off sounding oddly implausible, as original as it is. And that one struck me because it seemed like he was making an assumption about my intellectual capabilities because champ I always imagined as like a kind of me on steroids, like a smarter, more witty, more funny person, but still me. And that this editor could not imagine that a person could be, have these experiences and then have these kind of intellectual curiosities was a real like jab to me and my identity. And so one of the reasons why I chose essay, maybe even the most important is because it forces you to reckon with the writer's ideas 
And I was like really, really set on like, well, I'm not going to let them dismiss my mind in this next work. Hmm. Um, so that is two things. One, I think to, to read these each as a discrete idea, right? Like American blood, they're like the people who we put up under our boot might be the most patriotic that, you know, matrimony, that a long-term drug addiction could also be viewed as like a marriage and fidelity to a commitment, right? So these, to me, they're all like distinct ideas. And I wanted people to like, okay, well, where do I stand in position to this? But not just to be looking for the story, which I know that there's a lot, I mean, I in writing features, right, I'm, I usually start with anecdote or vignette. And so it's the same way with the essays, right? So I'm starting with story and I'm ending usually with story so I can see how people would kind of make the the inference that this is a, a kind of a longer narrative. I feel like we're getting more and more, I don't know if you'd call this a memoir and essays mm-hmm. or not, or maybe that's yeah. just a marketing term. Yeah. But um, like Melissa Phoebos' Abandon Me, for instance, feels yeah. also like it's, she calls it memoirs, yeah. but they're, they also feel like they're standalone yeah. essays at the same time, and yeah. yet there's something that travels through them. Yeah. It's similar with survival math. Yeah. If we return to your reasons for writing residue years as as fiction in the rumpus, mm-hmm. how how did you reconcile yourself to your your fear of people recognizing themselves in survival math, um, particularly people who might still be dealing drugs or pimping or yeah. or someone who maybe in the past you you portray as committing a robbery yeah. or um, or even if they're not doing something illegal, just mm-hmm. maybe somebody who feels shame about yeah. something. Um. You know, I I don't think I ever really reconciled with that. The the person that I was most worried about was my mother. And uh, we had a long or some long talks before it was published about what I'd written about. And even because we were working on the documentary while I was still publishing. So she had already shared stories with me that she knew was going to be public because they were going to be on film. And, you know, that's a different thing, too. Now we know what you look like. And yeah. And so she, um, at a certain point, said to me, like, if this is going to help someone, then, um, you know, I'm willing to do this. I uh, I also, my, <laughs> I joked last night that my mom was my top research assistant for survival math. And um, last or two weeks ago, um, I ran a story. Well, actually, so the Harper's. And the New Yorker ran stories from or essays from uh, survival math. And the Harper's people hit me about the fact check. And I'm like, okay, here, here, take these numbers. And I didn't hear any more. I don't even actually know if they fact checked. I imagine that they did because yeah. they're Harper's. But uh, last week, really like the pre- maybe the week before, but going into last week, because it published, I believe, on Monday, the New Yorker. Um, I, they ran a story on my mother's addiction, the matrimony essay slash chapter, and they had to fact check her, the, the, all the, 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 the details, right? So they were like, we need your mom. So I didn't even think about this, but like those are triggers for an addict, right? To have to recall where you were and how much drug you use. And I wasn't privy to the conversation, but my mom called me back and she was like, wow, like, why would they do that? Like, why would they need all of those answers? Like, why would they have ask all of those questions? And I, I was like, damn, like, I just put my mom through uh, some trauma to publish an essay. And uh, I, that made me sad that uh, not only had I asked her, 
the questions to actually make the essay, but that then they were coming back and uh, and asking her to verify. And then they they wanted me. There's so I use pseudonyms when I think the people it, it could be harmful to them, and we don't have a close relationship. And so the person who exposed my mom to drugs for the first time was one of her good friends, and they wanted to interview her. And I was like, that's where I draw the line. Like I'm not. I'm not recruiting another person for you to interrogate them. Like, I don't know what space they're in. And so they ended up cutting. uh, They had to change some of the language around that. Um, But I was just thinking, like, wow, my mom is so generous to do this for me. And also that I've, like, put her through something. While I've been here, one of the things about the survival files is that they are um, anonymous, Right, so I, I never identify which story belongs to which person. Well, maybe before uh, oh, you you go further, tell people who haven't read the book what a survivor oh, okay. file is. Yes, because this is another way, kind of like the cento and yeah. kind of like the prologue, that you and you bring in other voices that aren't your voice. Yes, so the book cover features sixteen men from my family, and uh, those are portraits that I shot a few years ago. I was actually staying in the tin house. When oh. I shot those, yeah. So most of those photos are taken in the tent house. And uh, they, I asked each of the men that I photographed the same question, what's the toughest thing you survived? And then I write their um, stories or transform their stories into second-person narratives. And uh, I, uh, there's several reasons why I did that. One, um, they kind of were born out of the, the inception of the Black Lives Matter movement, and uh, particularly with how young black men were being portrayed, the victims, right? Like he was dangerous or he was wearing a hood. And I wanted to visually decontextualize black men and say, if you just look him in his eye with none of these kind of cues, does he look dangerous to you? And then why does he look dangerous to you? And then I wanted to use the second person because I think that it uh, is both, it has the intimacy of a first person narrative, but it also invites the reader to imagine themselves as the protagonist. So I wanted the reader to get as close to that experience as I thought that they could and thought that, well, probably this might be a disparate experience from what my readers could imagine. Um, and I thought a uh, second person invited them to do that. Uh, so not even the men who are in the book know whose story is who. They only know their story. So they're like, oh, is that... I'm like, I can't tell you. Oh, wow. Yeah, but... But they're all... All 16 were okay with their story being in the book. Right. So, but I received a call yesterday from a family member of one of them who recognized themselves in the story and was upset that they told the story. And I'm like, well... Uh, I can't even identify to you whether or not you're right. I'm like, listen, I promised everyone anonymity, but this person was actually hurt. Like, why wouldn't you come to me and talk to me about this? And I'm like, but that's not how this works. So when we arrive, periodically through the book, we arrive at survivor file yes. sections. Yes, and we see these, sections. We see these amazing photographs mm-hmm. and we, we get the stories. Yeah. They're not corresponding the stories no. to the photographs. No. Can Can we hear one of the files? Yeah, yeah, sure. You're out one night at the weekend hot spot off too many straight shots to count, and therefore the kind of faded you swear manifold your funny. When you hear a dude you don't know say, blood, to cap a sentence. Damn, I didn't know people were still gangbanging, you say, and search the nearest faces for mirth. 
but don't nobody smile nor laugh. And in fact, dude smacks you upside your dome as if your joke was his cue. In an instant, the two of you take to scrapping inside the club while neighborhood dudes whose account could damage your rep bear witness and you best him before being wrenched apart and bounced outside. He paces one way, you pace the other, and in the distance between you lies the tacit truth that the animosity is in no way squashed. The next day, your friend is hosting your brother's moving to New York barbecue fish fry, and you show up hours prior, dump a shoebox carrying your Uzi and nine on the living room table, and shout to the group of gathered men, and God, I heard people was looking for me. Well, let them know. I ain't hard to find. Somebody gonna die. In your mid-thirties, you'll bust one shot near, but just near, your father inside your crib, not to kill him, but to discourage him from discouraging you against prosecuting what might be your last ballistic beef. But on this day, you're in your late twenties, which in this case is plenty old enough to die. You stomp out of the house and slam yourself into a car driven by your ride to beyond good sense girlfriend. Your brother calls and cautions you against doing something you'll regret and furthermore against returning to the barbecue fish fry. Hours after his call, you flout your disinvitation, which is to say you show up and stalk the yard with a waist tuck nine bulging under your T-shirt and a scowl that ain't got no place near nothing festive. You see a dude who witnessed your scuffle the night before, a dude who's a friend of your new foe, and you flash your nine and threaten him into the basement. You lay your pistol in plain view and seethe. We can scrap right here, right now, you say. Nah, bro, I don't want no problems, he says, and warns your newest archer's foe heard word of your whereabouts and is on his way to the barbecue fish fry for action. By now, almost everyone wants you to leave, including the father of the friend who's hosting, and it's the father's wish you decide to heed. Oh, the timing. You stomp out of the yard, peer down the street, and in the distance see your new arch foe among a circle of dudes. You pull your pistol from your waist, and men, women, and God's only begotten son be damned. March into the middle of the street. Once, you told a grade school teacher of your plan to become a hitman, and though you haven't considered that career choice in ages, today could be the day that delivers you to the threshold of that young hope. Before you shoot yourself into that fate, a girl you know from high school darts between you and your new foe. She calls your name, pleads, please don't, please. She announces your fast foe as her brother appeals once more against gunplay, and you pause, seeing an escape out of what a breath before felt destined. Oh, that's your brother, you say? And lower your pistol. The next week, you pull into the parking lot of the grocery store with your daughter in the passenger seat and out of some place unseen, your foe pulls up beside you. Neither hand touches the wheel and you bet blood on why they aren't in view and what one holds. Decisions, of which the most fool would be to reach for what's under your seat. 
your daughter is a fifth grader, which is to say, in this instance, plenty old enough to die. You curl over her embrace, and when you don't hear a pistol bark, you raise your head, shake it. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Look your faux eye to assassin black eye and mouth. Man, I don't want no problems. It's squashed. It's squashed. He idles for what could be the rest of your and your firstborn's life. We've been listening to Mitchell S. Jackson read from Survival Math. So I wanted to return to one of the reasons you wrote the novel first, which mm-hmm. you said was um, so you wouldn't be pigeonholed as a writer with one or a person with one story and yeah. not actually a writer. And, and you've talked before about how white the publishing and the literary world is yeah. and how few people of color were in your writing programs mm-hmm. and about your fear that, in your words, here's another black guy who has a hard knock story. Yeah. And your response was to say, I have to get to a point where they have to look at this writing and say, this is good writing. And he just happens to be telling this story. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously with how incredibly crafted the structure of this book is Mm -hmm. and unique, the voice and the syntax, Mm -hmm. and you've been recognized with the Whiting Award Mm -hmm. and you have the admiration of all of these literary luminaries. Mm -hmm. You've obviously achieved this and more, Mm -hmm. but I was reading your your Facebook page um, this, oh, yeah. the, this this last week, <laughs> and you were re- you were writing you were writing you ex- you were going to be speaking yes. or doing a reading yes and this and you put the bios of your fellow readers up on your page and so here are some of the bios of your fellow readers one okay. was a multilingual poet novelist and translator whose work has been published in Spain Mexico Costa Rica Nicaragua Italy France and India mm-hmm. and then another one was one of contemporary poetry's most gifted lyric poets. And then your bio was, grew up in a neglected neighborhood in Portland, Oregon, where his life and the lives of those around him were shadowed by the crack epidemic. Jackson was almost a casualty of those circumstances when he went to prison for selling drugs. And I guess I was curious about your desire to inoculate yourself by being an exceptional writer, mm-hmm. then being a, an exceptional writer, mm-hmm. and yet still sort of encountering this, nevertheless, is this, um, well, I want to hear your thoughts on that on, yeah. on their own right, but I also wondered, is this a rare occurrence, or has the inoculation been partially successful, or are you seeing this sort of racial coding all the time, despite the fact that you're, you're um, obviously yeah. are making art? Yeah, uh, I'm seeing it all the time. Uh, And it's interesting to me because I would say that the publishing industry prides itself on being liberal. It's not just the the bio. I mean, that was a big hoopla. And, you know, uh, I probably could have handled it differently. I didn't. I guess that was a, a marker to me of the power of social media because I wrote that and hundreds of people responded and started tweeting and uh, it really became uh, bigger than I anticipated and uh, and I should also say that I went to that university and had a really good time and the people oh, that I met there were like very cordial it was like a really great experience um, but it's not just that it's like I won't mention any names but like I have in the you know last two or three weeks I mean done 20 interviews uh you know published three four excerpts and and in a few of those cases i have seen even the headline 
or the subhead that they're going to run the story with. And I'm like, you can't do that. Like, that's offensive. And I don't even know why I have to point that out to you that that's offensive. You know, like, you can't run a headline that says, my mother smokes crack. Like, I don't know. You can't do that. You know, yeah. like, would you write that about your mama and put it up on an online? And then I'm like, wow, like, but these are the people that are supposed to be the most empathetic. These are the people that are, you know, progressives, liberals. Like, this shit sound like white supremacy. Um, so I, I, I uh, and I'm not calling them white supremacists. I'm just saying to, to my mind, it feels, it, it, it really, it, it, it causes me to worry that the people who I think are as close to allies as I can get can't see me. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it does not matter. You know, they, they did it to Obama. So of course they're going to do it. You know, like you just work your way on down the line. So I think, you know, black people always say like once, if if you are N I G G A, you always are, right? And it doesn't matter your level of success. And you know this could be, it's it's in the writing, it's institutional, right? There's also like I have been in meetings at institutions where people, a room full of English professors, and one person comes up to me and says, "Wow, like you're really articulate." I'm like, "Well, like we're English professors, you know?" So like, it's, in, it's inescapable. Yeah. Um, and I I really feel it you know, in the publishing industry, but I also feel it in these, like, elite institutions. It kind of makes me think back to this white incuriousness around history and place and where we are in space, Mm. but also the way in which we can be in the same space and not be inhabiting not only the same stories, but even the same um, physical places where we go. Um, Like, for another interview that I'm preparing for in the future, Mm. I've been looking back at the... uh, conflict between Tony Hoagland and Claudia Rankin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Major Jackson wrote an interesting res- response that was um, partially in response to that, but it was, it was, it, it was prompted by it, but it was uh, about why don't white people write about race in their poetry. Mm-hmm. And then one of the things he was presuming was that when they do, it's usually uh, a poem of en- what he calls a poem of encounter, because um, the white poet doesn't have any friends or like sort of uh, everyday experiences with with black people, so mm-hmm. it's a poem of encountering a black person on the subway or mm-hmm. encountering a black person here or there, and yeah. that makes me wonder if like that sort of um, segregated everyday experience yeah. would potentially not to excuse the the responses of these subtitles, but yeah. maybe uh, uh, the exotification of the other yeah. as encounter rather than as person. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it has to be some kind of inaccessibility, right? And that's what you get when it's an encounter because it's just, you know, you don't have enough time to see humanity. Um, and yeah, so I, I, you know, on the one hand, it's like I recognize it and I want to fight it at every turn, right? If that's just me saying, no, I want to edit this hit. I mean, there was a story that ran with a headline. My agent sent me the email, and they, I was doing something else, so I saw it late, and they were like, oh, they're trying to run this this afternoon. Like, And so I was like, oh, no, they can't use that. Like, no, we uh, give me, Let me give you some options. And I'm just off the top of my head, like, I don't want them to run with this, but I better give them some options or this is going to run. So she was like, oh, yeah, these are better, Mitch. I'll forward this along. Then... I don't know, maybe a Google alert or something. So they ran the story with the headline that they sent me that I said no to. 
And then I saw, I was like, oh my God. I was like, what happened? And she's like, let me email her right now. And then they changed it immediately. Mm-hmm. But so the, but the, the question is not, will you change it? The question is, what the hell did you see that made you write it in the first place? Or what did, did you not see? Right. Yeah. No, yeah, I think the second question is the, yeah. is the one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but so, yeah, so, so I, I want to be careful like that I'm, I'm not trying to uh, convict people as being, you know, bigots or anything. I just think that, like, there, I hope that it's not a chasm, but, like, it feels often like there's a real chasm between even people who want to extend themselves, want to see you just... Is there something between us and they can't see across that line? Yeah. No, I want to talk more about whiteness and white spaces in this book. Okay. Um, but before we do, is hoping you do another really short reading. Okay. Um, about, so for people who aren't from Portland, historically, Alberta, Williams, and Mississippi were the, um, the black commercial districts. Yes. And uh, a lot has changed yes. in the last, particularly in the last 15 years. Yeah. So could you read? Um, it's early, right? Yeah, it's on yeah. page 11 and 12. Marcus, I'll close soon. But before I do, I must tell you about a not so long ago day I cruised the arteries of this new city. Alberta, Mississippi, Williams Ave., saw on Alberta a staffing company and a yoga studio and restaurant bars, saw cheery citizens lunching on a patio under the shade of tall trees and a vacant lot transformed into a scaled metropolis of food trucks. There was a clothing store and a bike shop and a sticker shop and a donut shop and a place that fixes guitars. That day I rode up and down Mississippi and saw a tattoo shop and a tea shop and an art gallery and a bookstore. Witnessed a shabby dude, the lone brown face for blocks in any direction, flitting to destination somewhere. Saw a cafe that sells crepes and a boutique that hawks high-end glasses. While wheeling the wide berth of an interminable-ass bike lane, I peeped a dude on a mountain bike in khakis and an Oxford shirt and a woman tattooed in plural on a cruiser. Every few feet or so it seemed, construction crews were erecting odes to privilege. On Williams Ave, I beheld more miles of bike lanes and bike shops and bikers and the bike bar. There was an Art Deco hospital building under construction, and a bakery, and a hair studio, and a Pilates studio, and yet another damn yoga studio. There was a mother pushing a hooded stroller, and a couple traipsing the sidewalk hand in hand as if this world would never fail them. But what I didn't see on Williams Ave was a single black face any which way my head turned. Our absence made me question whether this new city is the yield of what they've sown or what we've reaped. It made me wonder if it's our just due from surrendering our hope too soon or dreaming pragmatic or mashing on somebody's baby girl all winter to glory, new wheels down MLK and majestic summer brilliance or being enchanted with colors, or transforming from one gang to the other, or copping a dope sack on consignment from a head start on prison big homie and posting all night on a dim side street for a few bucks, if even a buck, of profit, 
or seizing with a strap what don't belong to us or flouting a second or third strike or revolving to prison to serve a mandatory minimum stretch, I ask myself, could this new place, home, which seems so much the locus of our undoing, be the harvest of our collective deeds? The answer is yes. But the answer is also that you and me and the generations between and beyond us must refuse assuming the greatest weight for what this place has become. Because if these centuries attest to anything, it's to the incontrovertible truth that this ain't our Eden and won't be, for that was never their intent been listening to Mitchell S. Jackson read from Survival Math. I, I feel like I experience a failure of imagination on what, what that must feel like, especially when you say there's no black faces, but you yeah. also see a lot of Black Lives Matter signs yeah. all, all up and down those streets. So yeah. it's a particularly yeah. surreal situation. Yeah, man. It almost feels like satire almost. It's like yeah. I was in a – I was here maybe two months ago and – um Okay, so first of all, Mississippi was like, you don't, I mean, there's nothing, on, it was like literally nothing on Mississippi. I mean, you know, like, yeah, I remember. just drive down the street, it's like, why am I over here? Like, I don't even know anybody that lives down here. Yeah, so it was like desolate, pretty much, down there. And now it's like, you know, restaurant central, bar central. And I go into the bars, and there's always a guy that looks like he's from Brooklyn. He probably is from Brooklyn, but, like, you know, he got the handlebar mustache, and, you know, he got the hat, and he's a little, you know, like, everything that you can think of. Like, he got his, you know, raw denim cuffed up big in his boots. And I'm like, okay, one guy, okay. Two guys, okay. Like, every guy that's working in the bar looks exactly (laughs) like this. I'm like, like, how did this happen, you know? And then I, you know, I asked myself, like, I tried to imagine him here in 1990, in 1989. And I'm like, I can't see it. Um, And I wonder, and it's not even to say that, like, I'm sure that bars and restaurants on Mississippi is better than desolate desolation. But, like, I guess the question is, like, why couldn't there have been bars and restaurants in the city when we live here on Mississippi Ave? Yeah. You know, I was making I was making me think about a quote from Sarah Ahmed's book on being included, where mm-hmm. she says, "It is important to remember that whiteness is not reducible to white skin or even to something we can have or be, even if we pass through whiteness." Mm-hmm. When we talk about a sea of whiteness or white space, mm-hmm. we talk about the repetition of passing by some bodies and not others. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, oh, wow. Brian Stevenson and Just Mercy, who says the way to help is to get proximate. Um, and the reason I bring these up is because even way before uh, these streets of black culture become white spaces mm-hmm. with some black bodies moving through white spaces, but not many, even back 20, 25 years ago, like yeah. we were talking about um, before the show, like we were both here. Yeah. So I, I moved here in 93. Uh, this book, I think, takes place during some of those. Yeah, absolutely. Some of that time. Yeah. So you've you've, you've mentioned that. Like when you come home and you hang out with the Portland writing scene, mm-hmm. that's not a, a Portland that you remember from no. when you were growing up. So, and similarly, mm-hmm. I grew up, I mean, I didn't grow up here, but I was here when I was in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. And um, I knew about Vanport and I knew about redlining and mm-hmm. I went to the first 
what's good in the hood in, oh, wow. in North Portland. Okay. But nonetheless, this book was like revelatory. Yeah. Like I didn't like the 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 chasm between yeah. you and me in the same city. Right. Still feels immense reading the book. You know, Portland is like seventy five percent white mm. and only five percent black. But I would imagine even in diverse cities that are hyper-segregated, like Chicago, yeah. that is probably also true. Like yeah. someone who's living in in Highland Park versus right. in, um, on uh, south side of Chicago. So even if we put aside like the question of history, mm-hmm. um, all people know the history, the white history. So everyone knows of Lewis and Clark. Right. Yeah. But the white people don't know of York. Yeah. Um, even if we're just talking about contemporary lived lives, mm-hmm. it feels like white people have little clue about contemporary black lives. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if this made it, you know, more likely to get these terrible racially coded bios mm-hmm. or subtitles. But I guess I wanted to hear more of your thoughts about this thing that keeps reenacting itself yeah. in, in particularly in urban landscapes, I think. I mean, I think what well, I, I don't remember the person's name, but you said uh, like white people are somebodies. Um, and I think that, uh, reminds me of a conversation that I was having about exceptionalism and how like you to 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 get to even the place that I am which is not you know I'm at not any apex I hope <laughs> but uh like people say like oh you're exceptional and like but what if I could get here just being average you know like I think that that's like the benefit of whiteness is that you can be average and achieve much more than someone who has to be what we call exceptional. Well, um, you can be terrible and become president. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. They're, they're, I think that's like the ultimate example of like averageness, like being exalted. Um, and then like, but, and even so like average being exalted, but then also like rubbing the averageness in your face too. Like, mm-hmm. yes, I know that I'm not exceptional and I still look at me now. Um, so I think that um you know I I want to kind of mm, investigate this idea of what exceptional means and uh because not that I don't want people to achieve whatever they are capable of but that I want us to kind of reimagine uh how we look at like what it takes for a a a person of color just to have like a kind of equal standard of living. Um, and I, I think that, that we, we uh, I mean, I wish I had some answers for that. Uh, but I, that's a, the that's a kind of question that I'm wrestling with because on the one hand, like, you want to be exceptional, but then you can't, or at least for me, I can't believe that I'm exceptional, right? Because if I believe I'm exceptional, then I can't see the people that I grew up with. Right. Like that, that, that cuts me off from them. But then I must believe I'm exceptional because there's all these kind of structural barriers to me achieving. So I have to believe like, well, I'm the one that's actually going to get over this one. So it's like, how do I hold this paradox inside of me to like see the people that I need to see, but then also see the barriers and figure out how to navigate them? Yeah. I don't know if I think I just meandered around the question. but No, that was an amazing <laughs> answer. Actually, okay. I thought you say in survival math that. Ignorance requires ignorance of history, which is a way to preserve innocence in the face of living, which I love. Preserving innocence in the face of living seems like a great definition for the phenomenon of whiteness. 
you also say in survival math that America's true religion is neither Christianity or patriotism, yeah. but whiteness. Yeah. So I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that whiteness, yeah. not just as identity mm-hmm. or race, but as religion. What does that mean? Yeah. Um, well, I, that, I think that kind of speaks to that point that I made about there being, uh, uh, I guess, a high percentage of a per capita of like white supremacists here. And then also this being a place that prides itself on liberalism or maybe even progressive. And uh, um, I think for what to me is the, the, the thing that binds both of those groups is whiteness. Uh, and I also think it's interesting uh, to kind of use the, that was talking about innocence with my daughter, but like, yeah, the like white innocence. Cause you would, I, I couldn't imagine how many people say like, wow, I had no idea these things were happening. I'm like, how could you, well, like, where are you living that you don't know that there's black suffering? You know, like not even just black suffering, like that people of color, marginalized groups, the disabled, like are suffering. And if this is 2019 and this is like a revelation to you, like, 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 where do you live? Like, what are you watching? What are you reading? You know, like this should not be revelatory to anyone. Um, so that to me means that you are willfully ignoring the information that you think is going to convict you or implicate you in some way. And you're moving through the world like that, which also means you need other people who are willing to move through the world with the same kind of ignorance mm-hmm. so you can maintain it, right? Because if you get around some people that are, quote, woke, then how can you kind of maintain that? And I don't even like that term, woke. I think that that is even like a way to kind of ignore certain things, right? Like if you just put that tag on yourself, then you can just say like, oh, yeah, I, I know what's happening in the news, but I think that's a different thing too. But yeah, like I, I um, it surprises me the amount of people that I would just say like, wow, like that's a good person. Like, you know, they look like you know, they are, they're critical. They, they, they are abreast on the news. You know, I don't feel like they're a bigot or, you know, a racist. And then they're like, wow, I had no idea, Mitch. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, I thought you was the homie. <laughs> now I have to look at you with a different lens now. Yeah. yeah. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the religion of whiteness in relationship to your TED talk? Should yeah. black, should blackness exist? So, uh, I, ooh, man, you know, that's another kind of, I, I say these things and then I'm like, ooh, people, they don't like them. But, uh, I believe that like, we talk a lot about whiteness and deconstructing whiteness and where it came from. Um, and I think that talk was really, uh, born out of the same thing, really that apples, this essay in, uh, survival math was the James Baldwin quote, like, uh, there is no white, basically he was saying there is no white race. And then he was like, no one was white before they got here. So that sent me on a journey to like examining where this, where this idea of whiteness came from. Right. So whiteness to me is an idea. Right. But previous to that, I also, uh, read about, um, the group that, uh, determined themselves to examine whiteness and they, they, uh, they asked philosophers, sociologists, scientists um, to figure out whether ra- race existed, and it did not, right? Um, so I think we can examine whiteness and be critical of it, and I think there's a lot of theory now, and we all, I mean, the kind of progressive people believe that whiteness is a construction. 
But I was also interested in this idea that, well, blackness came out of whiteness, right? Like before we got here, we were Africans. Once we got here, we were something else, right? And so because whiteness created blackness or the other way around, because the existence of Africans created the necessity for whiteness, that if we are going to deconstruct whiteness, we would often have to also have to deconstruct blackness. Like you can't, they're twins, right? Like you can't get rid of the one and then keep the other one. And, you know, what if I say that as a person of African descent, that also means I have to reimagine my identity, right? So that's, you don't want to do that. And, and you know, as a, as a marginalized group, you feel especially like anxious about the prospect of having to reimagine yourself. But it would actually be a necessity if we were going to get to what they call post-race, which is like, to me, how can we have post-race America with race in the definition right. of it, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's it's problematic, right? Because it's like, well, if you want to get rid of this thing, <laughs> you got to get rid of this thing. But, like, I'm clinging to this thing over here because I don't have anything else. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so in survival math, sort of on that note, you have these endnotes. Yeah. And there's one endnote that leaps out for its length. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> yes. there's a many page endnote that sort of looks at the white supremacy of the founding fathers. Yes. Um, about whiteness being in the first census mm -hmm. and about the free soil movement being less about abolitionism and more about white utopian exclusion. Yeah. And you even quote Lincoln who said, there is an unwillingness on the part of our people, harsh as it may be for you free colored people to remain with us. And all this makes me curious about the subtitle of Survival Math, yeah. Notes on an All-American Family, because when I read the subtitles of other prominent black writers mm -hmm. recently, Claudia Rankin's Citizen, mm -hmm. An American Lyric, mm -hmm. Kiesi Lehman's Heavy, An American Memoir, mm -hmm. Terrence Hayes' American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassins, yeah. and Survival Math Notes on an All-American Family, mm -hmm. it feels like something is going on. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 I think you're on to something. <laughs> Uh, so I wanted you to speak to both your own your thoughts on that, both personally for your book, yeah. but also maybe if you have any thoughts on the larger, what feels like a phenomenon in a larger sense happening. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> keen, keen. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, forcibly asserting our Americanness is this the simple answer. Um you know, and I think it really connects to this idea in American blood where I'm like, like, it's easy to be American when America exalts you, uh, secures you, um, you know, makes it possible for you to achieve the prosperity that you want. You know, I meet these guys are like 27 years old. They're like, yeah, I'm in tech. I just I, I was just at a party the other night after my book release in Brooklyn. Met this guy. He kept talking about art. And I'm like, oh, so like, are you an artist? You know, you're a painter? He was like, no, nah, no, nah, just, I just like art. I, buy, I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, like, well, what do you, what do you do? He's like, oh, well, I don't really like do anything. I just, you know, I was in tech. I, I made a lot of money. I just retired. I like to like buy art. And, uh, you know, I just started a movie company. And I'm like, shit, like, you could just do that. Like, he just said it like, you know, like, yeah, yeah I just bought some Jordans last week, you know. And I was like, wow, that must just be like, a great thing, right? Just yeah. yeah, man. I just started this company, you know, two years. I sold it, multi-millionaire. Just you know, now I just like buy shit. I'm like, wow, like that is being white, right? Like 
I mean, maybe he's exceptional. I don't know. I didn't yeah. really have a chance to talk to him, but I, I mean, didn't immediately get the sense that I was speaking to a genius, right? Yeah. So I'm like, that's how the shit works. Yeah. You know, like, what would it take for my homeboy who has a T-shirt company who did 17 years in prison, who's now out and working and has a, you know, a company he's getting off the ground? Like, what would it take for him to just make his T-shirt company go public you know, make a hundred million and just retire and buy art and just be at a party, you know, just hanging out. Like that's never going to, I mean, hopefully it could happen, but the chances of that happening are so minute. Right. So to me, it's like, we have to assert our Americanness because we're excluded from even those, not even from those kinds of opportunities by and large. Right. Mm -hmm. And if we don't assert that, like, well, we didn't ask to come over here. But we're here. And, you know, before everybody was testing their DNA, we didn't know where to go back, you know, even if we wanted to. Like, you know, y'all made one place for us. We went to Liberia and were antagonistic to them. So, like, we can't really go back there and, you know, like, make a home. So it's like, uh, what else can we do but say we belong and do it in the most forceful way we can and, and make people reckon with that idea. So yeah, all those subtitles, I think, and Terrence's title are like leaning into that, right? Like you better recognize. <laughs> yeah. 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 When you wrote your novel residue years, your editor wanted you to look at the way your protagonist champ was portraying women. Yeah. <clears throat> because she feared that the book was going to come across possibly as sexist. Yes. And, you went back and looked at the descriptions of women, and you agreed with her, but you didn't want to change all the descriptions because yes. you also felt this was who Champ was as a person. Mm -hmm. So uh, instead of removing them, your protagonist breaks the fourth wall yes. and acknowledges what must be what it must be like to be inside of what Champ calls his vagina monologues. Yes. Um, so <clears throat> likewise, there are, are several points in survival math where we are sort of spoken to directly. Mm -hmm where you invite the reader in explicitly in order to make clear that your providing of context is not meant as a justification of actions, yeah. which I think is really interesting going back to the beginning, mm -hmm. knowing all of the history of your, your parents or your grandparents or York or Marcus mm -hmm. and the exclusion laws and the lash laws mm -hmm. totally changes the reading mm -hmm. and doesn't feel like you're making excuses, mm -hmm. but there is a tension that you're grappling with yeah. about, um, you know, personal accountability mm -hmm. versus context. Yeah. Um, and here are a couple of things that you say when you're, when you're addressing us. Mm -hmm. Often over the course of reading, reflecting, drafting, and revising, I started asking myself, what's the difference between a scrupulous, wholehearted self-inquiry and a long-ass exercise in making excuses? Mm -hmm. And at another point, you say, I could have just rode the redemption story from prison to publishing. And I was thinking about this in relationship to this question of providing context as a way to inoculate a person from criticism, mm. um, cause it definitely feels like your book, if it had been just a purely redemption story, mm. I think it still would have been a really good book. Mm -hmm. And I think the book would have totally worked without your sort of remarkable self-reckoning around your relationship to women and mm. misogyny. Mm. Um, what prompted you to Walk us through black history, mm -hmm. the history of your family, the history of Oregon, and then end up deep down inside your own heart mm -hmm. doing a spiritual inventory mm -hmm. around your actions towards women. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the kind of ostensible 
impetus for that essay was an essay that I read in Esquire magazine. I just went back to it because uh, I saved it. <laughs> and it's uh, 2011 is the publish- publication date. And it was called Why Men Cheat. And the guy was a married guy who published an anonymous essay of about why he cheated. He gave his rationale, and he was really, I mean, there's a lot of hubris in it. It was like, and I don't give a damn what you think, and these are my rules for how I do it. And and his thesis was like, you know, you have to believe, like, monogamy is a lie and, you know, something about, like, love being an illusion. And uh, I read that, and I and I recognized some of my, at the time, I guess, I don't know if I have believed to the degree that he did, but like I recognize enough of my kind of pathologies in what he wrote, and I, uh, but I was also um, struck by him publishing it anonymous. I was like, well, that's like, it's <laughs> like, like it lacks a little courage. Yeah. But most struck by the fact that he never mentions the fallout. He never mentions any harm that he's causing anyone else and I and I said wow like what if I took on that as a challenge to not only uh like admit what I had done but then also to like conceive of what the fallout was because I had been the the harm that I had caused women caused women had been discreet I had never had to kind of lay it out in front of me and go Oh man, and for you know self protective reasons, I kept each relationship discreet in my mind, like oh, that happened here, and I you know I make up these justifications for why they happen, and you know that's just how I am, and you know, but that kind of that excuse making doesn't stand up to reason, um so that was really why I got started in the project, and then i so that was you know an early draft of that. And then over the years, while I was working on these essays, I found myself trying to historically and culturally ground whatever the the, the idea was, to, to ground whatever the idea was in history and culture, right? And so I was like, well, I can't do it with all these other things and not do it with this. Mm-hmm. And so that is what made me, like, sent me on the line of like, well, where does this, like, where does patriarchy come from? Like, well, where does this idea of misogyny come from? Like, did it just start with black men in the 1990s? Like, I don't think so. But but I was also the whole time there, like, reckoning with it. That felt like the most um, dangerous in terms of, like, the research becoming an excuse. So one of the things that my um, mentor, Gordon Lish, used to say was, like, you have to be able to admit on the page when you're wrong. You have to, you know, like, you don't need to know all the answers, but you have to, like, almost recognize what the questions will be. And so I was, you, you know, in this kind of historical investigation, this uh, um, self-inventory, and then also going, but I'm also writing this for an audience, and I know that they're going to have these questions, and I didn't want... I think I was most worried about a misread with that. Like, and I've, I've got the most critique from that essay. And one of them, one person asked me just yesterday, like, why didn't you just tell us what you did? And, you know, why? And I was like, but, but that's, that, they're not even helpful. Like me saying 
what I did is almost to me like shut up and dribble. It's like just give us the story. Well, yes, I could tell you these things, but there are people who have done much less worse things, and there are people who have done many more worse things than that. But to me, that's not the point. The point is not what I did. The point is like how did I become the person that was capable of doing these things? And to me, that was like, well, I got to go back and back and back. Yeah. Um, but I also realized maybe a little too late that this could also be a trigger for women who had experienced emotional abuse. And I didn't think about that. Like I sent it to me. I sent this is the one that got the most wide feedback. I sent it to women like read this and let me know what you're thinking. Um, it's interesting. The, the like it was like almost a divide between women who were like middle age and older and women who were like, say, 30 in the 30s and the kind of responses uh, that they gave. And then also whether or not it was a person of color or not. Um, mm-hmm. Also kind of, to me, uh, uh, the, the feedback was, uh, I guess, noticeably different between them. And uh, But ultimately it was like, well, I committed to this and uh, because I made this commitment, like I have to see it through. And uh, if there was any essay to cut, that would have been it. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Because I guess to me, I felt like that's what elevated survival math from good to great mm. was that essay. I was reading, preparing for a conversation with Lacey Johnson on oh, the, yeah. the Reckonings, mm-hmm. which is about um, social justice and our complicity in, in a variety of oppressions. Uh-huh. Obviously, I can't speak for the experience of, of being a woman reading mm-hmm. these. So yeah. I, um, I have that limit limitation. Yeah. But my jaw dropped at the level you went to. Like I was thinking about Juno Diaz's yeah. um, public... Uh, response, which yeah. his apology seemed strategically timed to yeah. me. Um, but he also, in providing context mm-hmm. that he was the victim of child sexual abuse, mm-hmm. it felt like a way to deflect and yeah. defend um, and justify. Mm-hmm. And he was centered in the narrative, yeah. and none of the women were named. Mm-hmm. They're sort of walk on characters in his self redemption yeah. tale, um, at least in. in in my reading of it. Mm-hmm. But in this case, she'd not only do this long self-examination mm-hmm. of men yeah. and of you specifically, but you turn over the memoir for 10 pages yeah. to women who you've harmed. Yeah. You give women the opportunity to, in in their own words, unedited, speak mm-hmm. about what it was like to be in relationship with you. Yeah. And I, I guess I want to hear about that a little bit. The process of that, I mean, even independent of what's on the page, mm-hmm. the process of, uh, of reaching out to, mm-hmm. uh, partners and the self-reckoning that that entails for yeah. you to do that. I'm assuming that could be triggering for people yeah. that you reached out to too, but obviously some of the women took the opportunity to be in survival math. Yeah. Well, uh, that was a decision made very, very late in the drafting process, revision process of that. I mean, it's it's probably the last significant thing that I did in the essay. I was reading it. I was so the essay is also structured like a criminal profile, and uh, one of the parts of a profile is victimology, which is a complete, um, what do they call it? Profiling of 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 a victim of a crime. You know. Uh, their history, you know, the, the actual crime, uh, the the perpetrator, all of these things. And so uh, I was reading it and I was like, 
wow, I'm trying to like imagine what it was like for these women. But that's an injustice. Like, I actually have to in, invite, at least give them the 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 the, the, the opportunity to speak for themselves. And I was like, well, I can't go to everyone, but I'm going to go to people that I actually had like a relationship with and people who I knew that I had caused significant trauma. And the kind of uh, what made that a fearful proposition for me is because I was also in a relationship and in love. And so not only was I, I had to engage with women that I was in prior relationships with, I was also going to have to include what they said and not be able to edit it. So my partner, my current partner was going to have to read, you know, like yeah. my files from my former partners. And uh, I knew that I wasn't going to come out clean on the, on the end of that. So that, and it, it really, it caused um, some trouble in, in my relationship. But again, I was like, Man, I have to at least give them. Once I decided, I was like, I have to at least give them the opportunity. And uh, one of them made a really good point. She was like, "Wow, you harmed us, and then you want us to help you uh, write this book." And, and and immediately, I was like, kind of defensive about that. But I was like, later on, I thought, well, sh I can see how you can you could like you particularly could see it that way. But some of the other women were like, well, if I share this, maybe there's something in it for someone else who's wrestling with this, which is the kind of tact that my mother took in sharing her kind of addiction struggles. And so I can see both sides of that. I think maybe that's the kind of that's the thing that I'm always trying to do in the work is like there's a see it both ways, if if possible. Right. Like, um, well, it feels like that essay Maybe that essay is the riskiest in terms of it sitting on the knife edge between justifying yeah. and um, reckoning, yeah. right? And so some people see the essay one way and yeah. some people see it the other, including the women who yes. either are involved or are not involved. Or maybe even the act of reaching out to them, maybe someone would interpret that as right. part of your self-reckoning and maybe someone else would interpret that as an extension of the problems you were, you're, yeah. you've been doing all along. Yeah. But it's, I think maybe that's what makes the essay so... Like alive and dynamic, well, it's potent, you yeah. Know, it's just you know, yeah. some people they can't take it, and I completely understand that. And I knew going, I mean, just the reaction of even my editor. My editor had two really strong reactions. One was to the first draft of Apples, right, where I like implicate white women in whiteness, and the second and most powerful was to. Uh, um, the scale, which was a different title at the time, it was so strong. She said she couldn't even read the whole thing. Hmm. She sent me a long email. She was like, I just couldn't even read it, Mitchell. Like, I'm going to have to put this down. Meaning that she wanted you to edit it or that mm. was there something connected to it on how she wanted it to be changed? She didn't even offer any revision. She just was like this, like, I can't read this. It's it's It hurts to read this. Yeah, And I took that as like, Whoa, because she cares so much about me. I mean, she's really like one of the closest people to me now. And for her to have that reaction, I was like, oh, this is scary. Like, yeah, maybe it, I shouldn't do this. Yeah, it hurt me to read it. Yeah. And um, yeah, hurt me in a way that I, I guess 
I don't know, like I felt like the pain that I experienced, mm. you know, recognizing my own behaviors mm. and my own life. And, yeah. and, um, it felt like a, uh, it felt good in a certain way yeah. that you brought us there. Well, that was my second reaction was like, if she responded with this much passion, there's something to this essay that I must figure out. Like, I, I have to figure out how to get this into a space where people aren't just going to shut down, but, like, I can actually prosecute this as a, you know, a project. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, so that that's what her reaction told me. Like, one is like, whoa, Mitch, like, this is troubling. And the other thing was like, but you, now you really got to do this. You got to figure this out. So she wasn't saying cut it out. Uh, well, she's not that kind of editor where she'll say, like, this has to go. Like, she'll suggest yeah. things and she'll ask me questions. She's she's really good at asking me questions yeah. and seeing things that I don't see. But she would never say, like, Mitch, you have to cut this. Yeah. Yeah. So sort of in the way you begin the book with Marcus, you, you end your book with um, the question of how uh, our self-reckoning or not um, mm-hmm. affects our partners and our, and yeah. our children. Mm-hmm. Um, and the small and large daily things that are required to be accountable to, yeah. to others. Um, and you, you have this, uh, really beautiful ending with your daughter, yeah. um, which feels like a really, I, I think the way you hold the book between Marcus and your daughter is yeah. really wonderful. Right before that, there's this really interesting section that I think would be particularly interesting for writers mm-hmm. too about revision yeah. and revising one's life. And mm-hmm. and you imagine yourself as a writing teacher in front of a classroom of students and yeah. these students are the living versions of peers and friends uh, who are no longer alive. Yeah. And you're teaching them a, a class, a step-by-step class in revision. Mm-hmm. So talk to us a little bit about this chapter, um, yeah. how this came to be and, and um, how you wanted to place yourself around um, people you grew up with who ended, whose lives ended in ways that were uh, more tragic. Yeah. And um, what, um, why you wanted to frame it in terms of a, a sort of a revisioning yeah. and, and a, a, a re-editing. So it was born out of, and I, I hardly ever accept prompts, but uh, the Center for Fiction, which is a place that gave me a fellowship and also the place where I studied with Gordon Lish, had a, or they still have a website, but they were commissioning work about writing. And uh, whenever I get a prompt, like, I never want to do what they ask. Like, <laughs> you know, so I was like, okay, well, I want to talk about revision, but not in the way that you want to talk about revision. Like, I want to talk about revision, about, like, reimagining one's life and uh um i can't remember like who which person i was thinking about first but then i so uh, i should back up and say one of the things that happens in survival math is there are which is why i think coming to it from fiction was helpful is there are scenes that i just wholly imagine right so i'll say like i was not i don't know who the first hustler was but i can imagine that being manumitted from slavery looked like this or like of course, obviously, I wasn't at the Frederick Douglass, what to the slave is the 4th of July. But I imagine if he was in D.C. right now, that the speech would go like this. And so um, this was also me kind of using the kind of fictionalized brain where like, what would it be like 
to like uh, be in a classroom full of young men that I know at a point where I could give them something that might alter their ultimate fate. Uh, it's interesting because what the first person that I um, conceived of in that or was my friend. Uh, his name is Kevin. And uh, we went to high school together, Benson uh, High School. And uh, I mean, just a great guy. We called him Asian Kev because he was like the only uh, guy in my kind of cohort. So I was reading last night and uh, Kevin's sister came to my reading and I had never met her before. She's much younger than him. And she was like, hi, you know, she shook my hand and held my hand in a way that was like, we were like close. And I'm like, hi. And she was like, I'm, and she said her name. And I was like, mm. and she's like, I'm Kevin's sister. And then I looked at her face and I was like, shoot, that's Kevin's face. And she was like, I just want to thank you for honoring my brother and like keeping his, uh, his legacy alive. And the other thing was she said, and I also work for Nike and I work with, so the, the book is dedicated to my friend who passed a few months ago, um, this guy named Aaron Cowan, who's like a fixture in our community and like really like one of my really good friends passed like, you know, one night he was alive. He went to the doctor next that night he was dead. And uh, and she worked with him and she was like, I can't even read the book. I've only read, you know, a little bit about what you wrote, but like, thank you for doing this. And I was like, that moment right there was like worth all of the other risks that I took. Yeah. Um, uh, so, but yeah, I think the revision, uh, I think revision is absolutely necessary for the people that I grew up with that I know. And, and I, I'm always trying to figure out how can what I do in my work be instructive for decisions that I make in my life. Could you read this one little paragraph sure. that, um, about revision that I just loved? I think people will love this. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Revision is seeing the work in progress. Revision is seeing the work in context. Revision is recognizing the parts of a text and how they work to form a whole. Revision is seeing what could and should and shouldn't be there and conceiving of ways to make it so. Revision is discovering what's right and imagining how to make it more right. It's pursuing a new way of seeing and being. Revision is a philosophy. Revision is revolution. So what are you what are we going to expect from Mitchell S Jackson next? <laughs> you have a you have a survival math movie, right? I do have a uh, I showed it at the Brooklyn Library. Um I still want to make some uh edits or revisions to it. Not edits. Uh so I probably won't be like releasing it, but um my next project, um I just won this uh fellowship from the New York Public Library called a Coleman Fellowship, which is a year for me to be a scholar. Uh, at the library. So I won't be wow. teaching next year, which is the first time in 16 years I won't be teaching. And I'll be researching uh, for my novel project, which is about um, a cult that uh, existed in Oregon in the 1980s, a black cult. And uh, so I'm writing about a cult leader, which really excites me because now I can do like my biblical research. And, you know, like wow. I, I'm really excited to like figure out what this voice sounds like on the page. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, I mean, I haven't, I started doing a, a little initial research, but I haven't really been writing much, but, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to get to that project. I can't wait for that. Yeah. 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 I'm excited, man. 
Thank you so much for being on the show, Mitchell. Thank you. This is great. Yeah. We're talking great. today to Mitchell S. Jackson, the author of Survival Math. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. You can find more of Mitchell S. Jackson's work at mitchellsjackson.com. And Mitchell has also recorded for the bonus archive a reading of his great essay, first published in Tin House, called Dear Gordon, a meditation on Gordon Lish's mentorship, as well as an exploration of what it meant when Lish, like he had done with many favored students before, stopped returning Mitchell's calls. Dear Gordon joins supplemental material by Marlon James, Laylee Longsoldier, Carmen Maria Machado, Therese Marie Myatt, Sheila Hetty, Forrest Gander, John Keane, Lainey Zumas, Jen Bervin, and others. And all of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.